0: As you turn with me to Acts chapter 2, I'm going to go ahead and ask the Lord to be the one who speaks through his word today. Lord, you are holy and you are good. You're good to us in ways we don't deserve. You've given us your word. We know that it's profitable, it's useful for many different things. You've given us pictures of the church as a body, as a family. And you've called us to a hope that is beyond what we see. a hope that is beyond our lives. Lord, we ask today that as we read your word and as we study to show ourselves workmen who are not ashamed, Lord, that you would implant these truths into our heart, into our mind, into our hands, that we might know who you are, that we would have a desire to please you and that our hands would be quick to work in areas and ways that are of service to you and to your family that we are part of. Lord, I know people come to you today with many problems and health issues, marriage issues, work, Children, Lord, may we not be unkind to recognize that there are problems and needs among us. Lord, may we be sensitive to your spirit's leading. May we care for one another well, seek the best for one another. Lord, give us tender hearts, give us clean hands. Lord, we ask that as you call us by your word to proclaim, to preach, to herald, Lord, these would be your words from you, our King, that we can take to others, that we can show them that there is a God who loves them, even though we are undeserving. Lord, may your message be what is heard in spite of me. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I often feel ill equipped for this. I just want you to know that because the message of God is not me. It's not you. It's God's word. I know myself well enough to know that I would choose somebody else. And yet God chooses me to bring you his word today. So I ask that you would pray for me. I've done a lot of things in my life, but nothing has been this hard nothing has been this rewarding nothing has brought me greater joy and also greater hardship i appreciate that you do pray for me let's get started today there was an evangelist named john harper and john harper was called by the moody institute in chicago to come and preach and so for 3 months Harper left his home in Scotland, traveled across the sea, preached in Chicago, made his way back home. Shortly after arriving home, he got a message that said, the people loved your preaching and we want you to come back and spend another few months with us. So in the spring of 1912, Harper and his six-year-old daughter, Nina, boarded a ship out of England, set sail for New York that he could come back. Harper's wife had died in childbirth six years before this, and so Harper and his six-year-old daughter made the trek across the Atlantic. On the ship, many of the shipmates testified of Harper's persistence in sharing the gospel. An evangelist at heart, many people said that he came back to them repeatedly to ask them if they were saved, to ask them if they had given thought to the message of Jesus. One night, Harper ran into his room and grabbed his daughter and said, Get your life jacket. We struck an iceberg. Harper and his daughter put on their life jackets, went up to the deck. Harper kissed his six year old daughter, handed her to a crewman who put her on lifeboat 11. And the Titanic started to sink. After it had sank, Harper was swimming from debris pile to debris pile, asking people one question, are you saved? One man said, no, and Harper said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The man said, no. Harper took off his life jacket and gave it to the man and said, you need this more than I do. And he continued swimming from debris pile to debris pile. One man, when asked, are you saved, said no, and Harper gave him Acts 16.31, As Paul did to the jailer, what must we do to be saved? And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That man was the last convert of John Harper. The icy waters overcame Harper and his fingers began to slip and that man watched him descend to the bottom of the ocean. A lifeboat shortly after came picked up that man, and that man told the lifeboat captain, I was John Harper's last convert. He wrote a tract, a gospel tract, telling how as one man descended to death, another man was lifted out of his death to new life. As one man lost his grip on his life, another man was grabbed by the hands of God and given a new life. To John Harper, the gospel was what mattered. The good news of Jesus Christ was what he cared about. God had sent him on a mission. He didn't know that mission would be in the Atlantic. But that mission was his clear calling from God to preach the gospel, to share the good news, to tell the lost of the way to be found, to tell those in darkness where the light is, to tell the hopeless that they can have hope to tell the dead that they can have life. In Acts chapter two, the church is being founded and the same message was given to Peter and the apostles. If you know anything of Peter, you probably know that Peter was the first in his mind. He was going to be the first in just about everything. Peter was the first apostle that Jesus called Peter was the first to get out on the water. Peter was the first with his sword. Peter was going to be first. At the end of Matthew, Peter is the first to draw a hard line in the sand. Jesus tells these men, all of you will fall away. As they strike the shepherd, the sheep will flee Peter opens his mouth and is the first to put his foot in it, like often he does. And he says, even if these other men fall away, if they deny you, I will never deny you. Jesus says, on this very night, Peter, you will deny me. Even if I have to die, I will never deny you. And Peter denies Jesus. Fifty days later, we arrive at Acts chapter 2, verse 12, and Peter again is the first. Acts chapter 2, verse 14, Peter stood up. I'm glad that he did because Peter gives his greatest sermon that he preaches, probably the first Christian sermon ever preached, certainly the first recorded Christian sermon. The people had seen great things. They had heard great things. The apostles had received the Holy Spirit. They were preaching and speaking in other languages. There was a rushing wind and tongues of fire. And some of the people looked at what was happening and they were amazed and they were shocked and they were confused. And then others started to sneer at them and mock them and laugh at them and say they are drunk with new wine. And that's how Peter begins his sermon... In Acts chapter 2, verse 14, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all of you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Peter starts this sermon by telling the people, what you think you see is not what you see. So let me take you back to the prophet Joel. And he he reaches back and he grabs out of the Jewish history this prophecy from Joel. And Peter says, what you hear in Joel, what's happened in Joel, was speaking of today. Today. So Joel was looking forward, and now Peter's looking back, and here's where the past and the present meet for Peter. They're not drunk with wine, but what's happened is the prophecy is coming to pass as you hear me speaking. But Peter's not just giving them a history lesson, he's he's bringing this to a point. Peter's point is this in verse 21, then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What Joel saw was the coming salvation, that everyone, when this happened, can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. You see, preaching is two parts. It's the explanation and it's the exhortation, the explanation of what does it say and what does it mean? Why should we care? And the exhortation of, now what should we do? And so Peter's giving this explanation and giving them the reason why they should care. He continues in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Peter takes Joel and says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And now you Jewish people who are hearing this, You know that Jesus was sent by God because God showed it through miracles and signs and wonders. And that's God's attestation that Jesus is from God, just as you yourselves know. Peter's setting them up and building them up to a place that they cannot deny what is happening, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, that is Jesus, You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with your gladness. Peter continues in 29, brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He will not be abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. Peter gives them these words of David that David is saying, the Messiah will be this way. He will come, he will be sent from God he will not experience decay. He will not be abandoned into the grave. Do you remember, though, that Peter is preaching to the people that are hearing? And Peter drops in that line that, verse 23, he, Jesus, was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, and you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. You used lawless people to kill him. Not lawless people were used and killed him, but you used lawless people to kill him. And he speaks of David. If you want, you can go and see David's tomb. You know where it's at. It's over there. Go visit the tomb. Open it up. You can see the bones. You can see the crown. You can see David dead in Hades, still dead. His bones are there. He was left to decay. David, the great patriarch, a man after God's own heart, a man that God used mightily in a lot of different ways, wrote a lot of the Psalms, and yet here he is, dead and gone. But not Jesus. Verse 32 God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter has brought them through Jewish history to the point of this was prophesied and you know this was going to happen and here we are today. You killed the Messiah. God had promised the Messiah would come and he came and you murdered him. You can see David is still in the grave but Jesus, you yourselves know this we are witnesses of this, that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And here's the point of all of this. The explanation, the explanation of what it says and what it means and why they should care, all comes to a pinnacle in verse 36. Therefore, Peter tells these Jewish people, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah that's the whole of the Jewish history is that man sinned and God provided a way the whole of the Old Testament is pointing to the fact that there will be a perfect sacrifice the perfect sacrifice came and you took nails and you hung them on a cross and you watched him die but God raised him from the dead. And this Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Messiah. In the book of Acts, a full one-third of the book of Acts is preaching the explanation and the exhortation as to what to do. The church is being founded They are a brand new church. They are a church for the first time. They don't even know what it means to have true Christian fellowship because it's never happened before. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have the full revelation of the Word of God. And here they are waiting in Jerusalem as Jesus told them. And then all this starts to happen. And throughout Acts, they just keep preaching. They just keep telling people, this is what God said, this is what it means to do it. This is what God said, this is what you are to do. You see, one of the things that differentiates Christian preaching from any other kind of spoken word is this is what you are to do. In seminary, you can get all the information about who Jesus is and what he does and what the Bible is and what the Bible does but preaching combines that information with the exhortation to do something. What should we do? I said this is Peter's greatest sermon, and I think it's because verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Imagine these people who have heard that our ancestors had said that this was going to happen, that God would come and pour out his spirit on us and we would see and feel strange and different things. David said that someone was coming that would offer the perfect sacrifice. And now Peter tells him, he came and you murdered him? What are we supposed to do? Peter, what do you want us to do now? Peter can just tell them, your guilt is enough. You feel guilty, that's good. But that's not the message of the gospel. That's not the purpose of the preaching. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, they were cut to the heart, they felt that deeply, it felt like death, that they were going to die. Have you heard the gospel and known such a deep sinfulness in yourself? The death might be a better option than trying to deal with how depraved we truly are. They were cut to the heart. They asked Peter and the apostles who were standing and giving them all of the bad news. That's what Peter gave them. It's all bad news. If you would have read the Old Testament, you would have known this was coming. But you didn't. And yet here it is. What must we do? What should we do? If you've never come to that point of hearing your sin, the weight of the things that you have done against God, thats what the Bible calls sin is The things that we have done that offended God. The wages of those sin, the payment for those sin is death. That's where these people are right now. They're at this point of we've sinned, we've offended God, we've literally killed his son who he sent to save us. What should we do? Peter replied Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and all those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. It's a simple message to repent. The guilt that they feel is a start, but guilt doesn't save. Regret does not save. Repentance is to turn away, to walk in your own faith, fleshly sinful desire to do what you want to do, to live a life that is contrary to God and his teachings and to turn and go a different direction. To go all the way and say, I used to be this way and now I am going this way. The Bible calls it the death of your old self, that we have died and now in Christ we live, but we don't live In the same way, we live in a new way. We live for the one who saved us. That's what Peter tells them, repent and be baptized. If you've never repented, say to the Lord, forgive me. Because your sins, just like these Jewish people that Peter is speaking to, nailed Christ to the cross. My sins yelled crucify. Louder than the mob that day. They were the ones that did it. They were the ones that put the Romans up to it. They were the ones confirming this is what we want done. Don't give us Barabbas. Let's kill Jesus instead. Repent and be baptized. After salvation, baptism is a showing of what's happening in your heart. That I have repented, that I want to be saved, that I want to live a new life. And the Bible says to be baptized. Baptism is just a picture. You are put under the water and raised up. It's a picture of Christ being put to death, laid in the tomb, and being raised to new life. Baptism isn't salvation. It's not part of salvation. It's an obedience to what God calls us to do. There's at least five other places in the New Testament that repentance and salvation are totally separated from baptism. Here, Peter's giving them a big picture of what it means to be saved, that you repent of your sins and you start to follow God. First step is being baptized. And I know there are people that have been here a long time that haven't been baptized. In two weeks, we have a baptism. Be baptized. There's no reason not to be. It'll mess up your hair, you'll be embarrassed, you'll be whatever, but just be baptized. It's an obedience to what God has called us to do. It's easy, but it's an outward showing. It's a good first step of what it means to follow Jesus. Verse 40, with many other words, Peter testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. You see, with many other words, Peter testified. Peter testified things like, I walked with Jesus. I talked to Jesus. I walked on the water when Jesus called me. I was just a fisherman, and Jesus said, come, and I'll make you a fisher of men. And he called me, and I've done and seen miraculous things. But he also urged them. He strongly urged them, don't just hear, but act. Be saved from this corrupt generation. The corrupt generation was the same corrupt generation that we live in. One of self and selfish desires and living for sin. Be saved from that sinful, corrupt generation. And a lot of people heard it. A lot of people heard and they said, wow, wow. That's me that you're talking about, Peter. 3,000 were added. I said a full third of Acts is preaching and the explanation, exhortation of what the Bible says. In Acts chapter 6, the church has exponentially grown. You can imagine 3,000 were added that day. The church went from 20 or 50 or whatever it was to 3,000 or more. And there were a lot of needs. The Christian people weren't accepted. They weren't part of the mainstream. They were social outcasts because the main religion was Judaism. And they killed Jesus. And the Christians now say, We're following Jesus, the one you killed. And they were not looked well upon. So there were a lot of needs. And in Acts 6, the apostles say, we have to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer, to the preaching and teaching, the exhortation, the salvation message to others, and to prayer. It was so important to the foundation of the church that the message be taken and sent out. The word that the Bible uses often for proclamation, to go and to preach, is the word that was often translated herald. And before cell phones, before any kind of long-distance messaging, before you could call someone or even mail a letter through the post office, a herald would be sent by the king. And the king would write down a message roll it as a scroll or fold it as a parchment, and he'd give it to the herald, and the herald would take it wherever the king said to go. The herald would get to a town, and he would say, come on, I have a message from the king. And the people would gather around, and the herald would unroll the scroll, and he says, the king says, and he would read the king's message. The herald himself didn't have a message. The herald wasn't the one who was giving his own message, but he was giving a message from the king. The king gave him direction and told him where to go and what to do and what to say. And the herald served the king. And we are all heralds. Sent by the king with his message to go and to proclaim the good news to all who are far off and all who are near that Christ has come to make a way. And you're a herald in your family, at your workplace, with your children, with your neighbors. The message the King gives you is not your message. God does not need you to help him. He has already given the message. The message is that sinners can be saved because of Jesus. So are you heralding that good news? In the face of death, Harper swam from woodpile to woodpile, taking the message of the king to the men and women who hadn't ever heard it—that is what preaching is: it's taking the good news, saying, "Here's what Jesus offers," and it has big purposes outside of salvation. That's the first and primary purpose: is that those who do not know Christ might be saved. That preaching brings the weight of sin. And puts it on someone and says, either you bear the sin, or you let Christ bear the sin. When they repent and believe, as Peter said, they become part of the church. And the church has a purpose. The preaching inside the church has purpose. The purpose after salvation is to equip and mature God's people. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gives... These words, he says, he himself, that is Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to the church. God, Christ himself, has given these offices to the church, equipping the saints for work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we reach all unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. So these people were given to the church. First of all, the reason is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The saints are you, people that are set apart by God to do the work of the ministry. That's the individual that the preaching, the teaching has a purpose to equip. If you go into battle, if you sign up for the army and say, I want to volunteer, they don't just put you on a plane. They say you've got training to do. You've got to learn how to do things. You have a specialty. You have a weapon. You have some kind of personal protection. You need to know what it means to be equipped for the ministry. The second is to build up the body of Christ. Those individual saints equipped for the ministry are to build up the body of Christ as the body of Christ comes together. One person is never the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the church, the people coming together. The preaching is to equip the saints, to build up the body, and look at the purpose until we all reach unity in the faith. The equipping of the individual, the building up of the body, is so that we will have unity. That unity preaches the gospel. They'll know that you are my disciples, Jesus says in John 13, if you love one another. When we as the body of Christ are equipped, we are built up, and we have unity, the gospel is seen in strange ways because disconnected and different people don't have unity. But the church of God has unity because of Jesus. So we're to be equipping to build up to reach unity and in colossians chapter 1 paul says starting in verse 27 god wanted to make known among the gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery which is christ in you the hope of glory paul says we proclaim him that is christ warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in christ I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Paul's purpose here is to proclaim Christ, to warn and to teach all with wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's what his labor is. That's what his striving is. So Paul wants to say, when Jesus comes, here is the mature church that acts like and looks like the model that Jesus set out for us, that loves and cares for its own, that does good deeds for other people, that it might bring the good news to those same people. Paul tells Timothy in Second Timothy chapter four how that's supposed to be done. He tells Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus who's going to judge the living and the dead and because of his appearing in kingdom. It's this warning of all warnings that Paul gives to Timothy. You have this charge, Timothy. God and Jesus Christ is going to judge the living and the dead and will one day appear. Be warned. And here's what he tells him with this warning of judgment and Christ's return in mind, how is Timothy to do this? He is to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season. Paul tells Timothy, just preach the word. Be in season when when it's good, when people want to hear it, when the fruit is ripe. You get that watermelon and it's red and it's juicy and everybody loves it. Our church is growing. We're full almost every Sunday. We're in season. The word of God is going out and people are hearing and they're responding. But Paul's warning to Timothy is preach the word when it's not in season. When people don't want to hear it. When nobody wants to listen and repent. When there's nobody that comes to preach the word. To continue preaching the word. It rebukes, corrects, encourages. There's coming a time where people don't want to hear it. So Paul's telling Timothy, it doesn't matter. Because before God, who will judge the living and the dead, preach the word. See, preaching is a two-way street. My desire is to be faithful to the king, to say, here is the message of God. Here is God's word that He has entrusted me that I would just simply pass it on. The other side is to hear and respond, to be made mature, to respond in humility, to submit to God's word, to say, This is the Lord's word for me. My encouragement for us is to be teachable to be humble, to seek to be mature in the ways of Jesus. That we would collectively say, I don't know. I haven't thought of that. I don't have an opinion. I don't know. It's an okay thing to say. It's okay for us not to know everything. I come frequently to passages and say, I don't know what that means. And that's okay because we'll never know what everything means. But to be made mature says, I don't know, and then starts to try to understand through prayer, through study, through discussion. Lord, help me to understand what your word is for me. The purpose of preaching is that the church might be equipped for the ministry and to be built up. And the greatest news of all of the news about preaching is that it's not the messenger, it's the message that matters. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, and I'll let you turn there with me if you want because I'm eternally grateful for these these words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's right before Timothy if you turn there. 1 Thessalonians 2 starting in verse 5. I'll read it in a minute. It's great news because it, the outcome of the message does not depend on the messenger. The purpose is that the message would go out and God's message is used by God in spite of you, in spite of me. 1 Thessalonians 2, I'll uh, read 5 and 6. Paul saying to them, for we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Drop down to verse 11. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to live worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is why we constantly thank God Because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus. You took it for what it was. It was not Paul's message. It was not a human message, but you received the word of God as it truly was the word of God. It is not through human wisdom. First Corinthians says that Christ is the wisdom of God. Romans 1.16, For we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to those who believe. The gospel, the good news, is its own power. And yet Peter urged them, with many words, to hear, to accept, to respond to the gospel. Because the gospel is its own power. You know, I think of John Harper in the water. He didn't swim over to somebody and say, are you saved? No, I'm not saved. Okay, well, let's go back to Genesis. Do you have your Bible with you? He didn't say, let, let's go to the Ten Commandments and let me explain why you've offended God and how you've offended God. Let's list some of your sins. It's just the simple message of the gospel. It's John 3:16. For God so loved us in this way that he sent his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That whoever believes, it's a simple message And we're the herald that just says, here's the message of God, that you can be saved from your sins. But the point is, with the message of God, there has to be a foundation. There has to be a foundation because if there's no foundation, then the messenger is giving his own message. The herald takes the king's message and unrolls it and says, this is the king's message, And we take the king's message and say, this is the king's message. If there's no word of God, then there's no gospel. And if there's no word of God and there's no gospel, then there's no church. Because the church's one foundation is that indeed, the word of God, the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came and died. Without that, there's no church. Through the gospel, we are called out of our sin and out of darkness because of the gospel. Because of the gospel, we are reconciled to God, that we have broken that fellowship with God because of our sin, but the gospel says that there's one mediator that can come and reconnect that relationship and reconcile us to God and make our debts Gone. And that's through Jesus. The gospel unites us to Christ. And as he died, we also die to our old life. We die to our old selves. That we are no longer our old man or old woman because we were bought with a price. The gospel brings the Holy Spirit into our lives as we saw in Acts. To all who believed, they were given the Holy Spirit. The gospel ties the church together. It is only through the gospel that we are a church. If there's no gospel, if there's no word of God, then there's no church. Martin Luther said, God's people cannot be without God's word. God's people are not God's people without God's word. In 2 Kings Starting in chapter 1, there's a a young king named Josiah. He had a fairly poor legacy, bad examples. His grandfather Manasseh reigned for 55 years. And the Bible says, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then his son came, Ammon, only reigned for two years, He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then comes Josiah, who is a boy king at eight years old, becomes king. And as he grows, he sends some people into the sanctuary where they keep everything valuable. And he says, Go and count it and take a tally. So they go and they start counting. And one of the guys brings a book and he takes it to the priest and he says, We were counting and we found this. So they read it and they say, You should take it to the king. So they take the book to the king and Josiah says, oh no, we've made a terrible mistake. He read the book. He saw the law of God. And he saw that they were not doing what God had commanded them to do. Josiah immediately lights a match literally and metaphorically and starts burning it all to the ground. Everything for those last 57 years that his wicked father and grandfather had built and had done and had allowed, he just starts a fire that burns everything. In 2 Kings 23, it just, I mean, it's just a picture of the wickedness of Israel And everything that he goes through and destroys. The idolatrous priests, he burned it. The Asherah poles in the Kidron Valley, he beats them to dust. He throws the dust on the graves. Tears down the houses of the cult prostitutes. Tears down the high places at the city gates. Certainly the most wicked of all of them, he defiled Topheth, which is in the Ben-Hinnom Valley. So that no one could sacrifice his son or daughter In fire to Molech he tore down the altars the kings had made tore down the altars that Manasseh had made in the courtyard of the temple he smashed things he burned things he keeps going there were some priests that refused to follow him and at one point at the end he slaughtered those priests on the altars and burned human bones on the altars and then he's done and he returns to Jerusalem all because he found the word of God that says, you are living wickedly. Your idolatrous practices are in direct opposition to what God has said to do. The word of God is their foundation. 22.19 says, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord. I'm not gonna destroy everything while you're living. They're still wicked people. This is a story about Josiah. Hearing the word of the Lord, he tears his clothes. He starts to weep and mourn for the wretchedness of him and his people. And God spares him from all of the destruction because he heard the word of God and he repented. 2 Kings 23 verse 25 summarizes his life. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength according to all the law of Moses. And no one like him arose after him. Man, may that be said of us. We heard the word of the Lord. We turned to the Lord with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength. And there was nobody like us who is committed to the word of God like we are. The word of God has to be primary in our lives and it has to be primary in the church. Not your opinions or my opinions or cultural thoughts or expectations, but what the word of God says. But it's hard when like Josiah, we have idols and we have distractions and we have things that would seek to turn us away from God and away from his word. So my encouragement to us So identify those things that turn us away from the Lord. Identify those things that take our time, that take our energy, that take our focus, that take our heart away from what God has called us to do. When the word of God is primary in the church, the church is effective in accomplishing what God's mission is for the church. Because the church reads, the church understands. The church is like the Bereans in Acts 17 when Paul comes to them and gives them the word and they accept it with gladness. They're happy to hear from God. And yet they still search the scriptures to make sure what Paul is saying is true. They like Paul, they trust him, they're eager. But let us also make sure, because the word of God is primary. In 2012, John Harper's church was renamed the John Harper Memorial Church. And for a hundred and however many years, the message that John Harper preached in the freezing waters of the Atlantic is the same message that his first church that he pastored has been preaching. The gospel doesn't change. The good news that Jesus came and died for our sins and offers a way to be saved does not change. God's word does not change. It's the foundation of what we do. It's the purpose of what we do. It gives our lives direction and purpose. It provides the foundation for the church the picture of what we collectively are supposed to look like. I'm excited about the next few weeks as we continue looking at what the church is supposed to be. Because we are independent people. We're Americans. We like to do things our way. It's taught to us. And the Bible has a very different picture of what the church is to be. The church is to be united. The church is to be one. The church is to love one another sacrificially. A lot of what the church is to be goes against our very natures. And it goes against what we've been taught. So as my encouragement to us is that we will be teachable and we will be humble. My encouragement is also to take the next few weeks And I've put on the back of the handout all of the passages that we're going to be going through. Spend time reading and praying that we would be a church that is called by God to do His mission. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that we would be effective heralds of your message. That you have a message that we are to take. Lord, may we be not only effective for you, but we, would we be effective in the lives of the people as Peter sought to urge them and to plead with them to repent, to believe. Lord, for those who have not, repented and believed. I pray that they would hear your message, that they would know, like the people that Peter preached to, that they have sin, that they have part in Christ's death. May they desire to be made whole and new because of his death on the cross. Lord, I pray that you would, in our church, begin to build unity and build bonds, build friendships, that our church would stand out as a church that loves well both the community and one another, that we would be hope, that we would be light, that we would be salt, that we would be a city on a hill whose beacon shines throughout our community. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.